OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. All right. Well, Brandon, it sounds like we're already in action. We're already moving and shaking. So let's just jump right into it. Love up to. Awesome. Welcome. We're very excited to have you here today. Um, the best way for us to start is if you can give us a little bit of a background on kind of where you've come from, where you're at, and where you're kind of moving to. And yeah. then uh, one thing about you that nobody would know. Great. Well, I appreciate everybody having me on today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, my, again, my name is Brandon Drew. I'm based out of San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, I've been involved in tech for well over 20 years. Um, first dipped my toe into technology when I was going through my academics at Cal Poly, where I studied engineering and business. Uh, during that time period, I actually worked for the Department of Justice as a law clerk, uh, reviewing over 500 bankruptcy cases a month for over five years. So I jokingly say I learned what not to do in business before I got into business. Uh, and since leaving Cal Poly, I've been a part of five companies as a founder, co-founding employee with three exits underneath my belt. And in between that time, I did a brief stint at Merrill Lynch where I managed about 450 million with a team of uh, three guys. But I really realized where my superpower lies throughout my career is understanding the fiscal aspect of the business or the balance sheet and P&L to understand the health of the organization, as well as having a deep product background and be able to take a young company uh, with some product market fit and develop, develop a go-to-market strategy for them so that they can impact the business at a faster rate that they could do internally. Um, through that process, I last I left my last my last operator role uh, about five or seven years ago, um, and have since then been working uh, with companies in an advisory board or board seat uh, capacity. And just about a couple of years ago, started a fund called SaaS Growth Ventures with my partner Aram Kassan, uh, where we do what we do what we love to do best, which is impact companies' revenue. And then if we find companies that we can impact, then we directly invest with them. So we're extremely deliberate in terms of what our company does, SaaS Growth Ventures. Uh, you know, we are, uh, you can almost look at us as a hybrid of uh, private equity to venture in that we have an operating arm that directly impacts the company's revenue. And then by doing so, revenue is directly correlated valuation. And that's where our, our primary thesis is. Um, in terms of what people probably don't know from me is, uh, you know, the usual, uh, if you do know me, you know, I'm a family guy, uh, father of three kids, uh, and what I like to call PK or pre-kids, I was an endurance athlete doing uh, triathlons and marathon swims. Uh, but now that uh, I'm locked in on uh, family and as well as COVID, uh, I've been a beekeeper for over 10 years. And I would say that that is my side passion. And uh, as my wife says, uh, she questions my ability at beekeeping. But what I have to remind her is that it's not bee harvesting, it's beekeeping. Because if you can keep them, then they'll be your beekeeper. They're pretty difficult to uh, maintain sometimes. So, Awesome. Well, that's uh, that's a great little background and uh, interesting. But the one that I <laughs> the first thing that caught my attention was the beekeeping side. So I was yeah. kind of excited to jump into that uh, aspect of it. Uh, what got you started in beekeeping? When did you start? You know, it's, yeah, it's a great question. So it's kind of a little bit of a I'll try and condense the story down as tight as possible. When I was working at Merrill Lynch, I actually saw a couple, you know, you come in you have to study the markets, uh, current trends. And I saw a couple reports that caught my eye that came across my desk uh, within the within our financial analyst uh, group, 
which was beekeeping. And if we lost the bees, then, you know, the world's going to collapse. And I was like, well, that's kind of important. And at the same time, going back and forth from work on NPR, I was hearing the same thing. And so I did, you know, a little bit of my own research and little, lo and behold, one of my closest friends uh, out of San Francisco, his family has a ranch up in uh, Oregon and his parents were in town and his dad's a commercial beekeeper, uh, more of a hobbyist, but he has about 50 bees, bee, uh, bee colonies on his property. And so let's just put it this way. One thing leads to another, three or four bottles of wine, if not more, by the end of the night, he's like, well, if you love bees this much, you should become a beekeeper and I'll give you two of my beehives. I was like, great idea. Next week, we had two bees in, uh, in down in San, two, two beehives in San Francisco. And uh, I was shake, scratching my head going, what are we going to do now? And basically took a crash course of beekeeping out of the uh, Marin County uh, library. Um, and then from then, we have uh, my buddy Brian and I, uh, we've been beekeeping ever since. Uh, we've gotten a lot better than where we were. Uh, so now I'm actually known in my area for if there's any bee problems or swarm issues, they call upon me and uh, I get my kids in there and I teach at the schools, uh, in the kids' classrooms. And uh, there's uh, probably about three or four neighbors now that I've uh, also helped train up. So it's, and my nephew's now a beekeeper. So it's a lot of fun. And uh, I will say this that about beekeeping, I think this is a great analogy for tech and anything else, is just when you think you've figured it all out, the dynamics change, right? And so I'm learning year to year. Um, and there's a great group of people out here that I can that uh, support uh, the beekeeping uh, groups. So it's, it's it's a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, I think too a lot of you, you have weather, climate changes, a lot of things that can affect uh, a hive and and how it how it's active. The obviously you have the queen bee, and there's a lot of problems with the queen bee. And there's I, I've read so much on different aspects from yeah. the the lifestyle and how long a queen yeah. bee was living for ten years ago to what they live now. Yeah. They're going from you know, three, four months to now to four to six weeks, things yep. like that, where uh, it's dramatically changing because of climate. So it, it's pretty amazing what you're doing. And, and, you know, you can look at it from many different angles, but a passion or not, it, you're supporting the world and you're doing things that are helping repollinate. And, you know, you're going to have to deal with the diversity of the change of your, of your hive, but still pretty amazing that you're able to do this. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, the one quick snippet I'll give you is when we first started off, because we live in the city, we had a, a house of bees on a, 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 a person's ranch up in uh, the Marin Headlands. And they had a garden that they were really invested in for over, you know, 10 plus years. And we put the bees underneath an apricot, apricot tree and or a different type of fruit tree. And uh, the fruit tree had never yielded any fruit. After one spring, the thing was dripping. And so they said, and even here at our own our home garden here, which we have a pretty extensive one, uh, it really does flourish because of the bees and the pollination. So, oh, it's amazing! And not only that, but the honey is great to give away during the holidays, and people love it. So it's a great gift. Yeah, no, I, it's a great uh, door opener for sure. People uh, love that. Do you know what the other uh, uh, largest pollinator in the world is? Not familiar with it. What is it? Bats. Bats. Well, yeah. They also help with insects as well and uh, keeping them at bay. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's an amazing ecosystem. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and the reason why I, I love that you have this aspect, because this ties into, in my mind, it ties into all the things you're doing. And uh, when you look at beekeeping, you look at entrepreneurship, you look at investing, how much do you find that taking this passion that you've have and being able to teach and groom other people, how much you've learned from it by going in and doing something you had no idea what you were doing in and right. all the little things that you did to grow the knowledge to become now an expert in your area. And people are coming to you because you're the bee guy. 
Right. But 10 years ago, you might've been like, I was just a startup guy and I'm an investor. Right. And now all of a sudden you're, you're more than that. What do you think got you to do that? And then what did you see that changed around it? Right. And so if we can stick with the bee, the beekeeping uh, uh, concept here, um, I think what happens, and, and one of the key attributes of beekeeping is pattern recognition of getting into the hive and, and understanding the words where it has been versus where it's going. And then through experience, and again, using many years of, uh, of beekeeping experience, you start learning certain patterns that, okay, this is what's going to happen. We might have a swarm soon or the queen is not laying eggs properly, so they might be affected by mites, or I have scratch marks on the front of the hive and may, they might be getting attacked by skunks or raccoons at night and killing off the hive. So there's a wide variety, and that's what that does is doing it for many years, you create a baseline of experience and pattern recognition that enables you to be better the next year, and then as things change, you're able to quickly cross-check that off. Now, let's dive back into tech. I've been in tech for over 20 years, right? I've worked with organizations as either a founder or key, uh, one of the founding employees for several organizations. And there's certain things as we know, you can learn from a book, but you can't learn from, you can only get from experience. And I think that has always been the evolution that I always knew that I love the finance aspect, but I knew that I had, you know, being in, in venture or angel investing, it's what we like to call a maturity sport. Right. Not that you have to be mature to do it, but you have to have gone through some cycles in order to really get good at it and to be able to see certain uh, signals within the market. And then also the tech plays themselves, as well as the founders themselves and all that. And you wrap all this up together and then you kind of come up with a battle plan of how you want to approach it. Right. What is your thesis? What is the strategy that you have? What are the key areas that you resonate with? And it's the same thing with, you know, going back to beekeeping, you know, you have the systemic side, then you have the individual bee side, you know, then you have the ecology that's affecting the system. You know, there's all these different inward and outward pressures that uh, constrain uh, both ecologies. Um, and so that's where I think, uh, you know, for me personally, it's been an evolution and will continue to evolve um, as I get better and better within, uh, you know, supporting organizations. Because I don't view, and I think this goes back to our core thesis, if we can dive into that really fast, is that I think it's been easier now than ever to raise capital, and there's been so much of a surplus of capital. But when we talk with founders and entrepreneurs, they're not necessarily looking for the capital, they're looking for help. Because if you grid to a Series C or Series A, unless you're profitable, you have a set duration of when you run out of cash. And it's a numbers game. You either have to scale up or become profitable to get that next round of funding. And if you're scaling up to get that next round of funding, you have to have core metrics and strength indicators that you are investable at that level. Because again, they're only going to they're only going to invest in companies that are doubling growth over month over month growth in some instances. <clears throat> and so that's where we take a little bit of a different approach with the companies. Is we are that insurance, uh, you know for them to try and make the best decisions as possible uh, to hit those numbers. And it's uh, what I like about that and using the B analogy and kind of the reason why we are diving and using the B analogy is that uh, you're, you're protecting the colony and you're figuring out how to grow the colony and you're how to survive and all the metrics and data that patterns, the things that come into it, which is a startup. It and uh, if you treat it very similar, which it sounds like you have, and it's for you, it's not, it looks like it's not a short-term thing, 
you know, you want your colony to grow and build and you right. want to find ways to maneuver and, and build onto it and add in a larger hive and get more yield. But that has to come by being observant, being inside of the dirt and to learning about it. So taking that practicality of what you've gone through on the B side and obviously your past experiences in the work and you're utilizing numbers and everything else, which is the data pattern to what you were watching with on the right. B side, you're able to help these companies, which again is a huge miss for startups because they are looking at themselves as this short-term super growth, but they have no patterns. They haven't looked for a pattern. They haven't figured out how they're going to be sustainable. Right. And then they get faced with a million problems and they don't know how to attack them. So it kind of looks like what you're doing is you're beekeeping to your startups and you're saying, you guys just run the business, run the colony, get things going. And we're going to sit outside and we're going to watch the patterns and we're going to figure out what things you need to be maneuvering and changing and doing better, because that's what we're good at. You just keep doing everything else inside the hive. Is that a fair analogy? That's a fair analogy. I would take it a little bit of a step further in that analogy and that we're doing exactly that. But most entrepreneurs, when they get early traction, they want to all of a sudden pour all this effort and money into growth and hire a sales team, SDRs, VP of sales, and they want to hit $10 million. But what they really miss is understanding their ecology, right? What are the core KPIs uh, that you're tracking right now? Do you, are you tracking your opportunity, your, your MQLs, opportunity conversions to wins, your sales cycle, your CAC ratio to LTV? Um, you know, do you have a pulse of the business? Because if you don't have that, then pouring additional fuel onto the fire, as they say, uh, you're going to douse the flame because you're going to be running off into so many different directions versus, you know, really narrowing in that directional fortitude of where we need to be going. Um, and to get those, to get the, you know, as we like to say, even from the endurance side, small deposits in the bucket, they compound, they build up, they build up, they build up. And so right, rather than trying to shoot the moon, we really focus in on the micro moments to build that foundation of success so that they can continue to grow. And it's the same thing with beekeeping. You're right. It's taking an outside look, seeing what they're doing, small tweak here, limiting the hive a little bit during the winter time, expanding it up for growth, you know, understanding their life cycles. And I think it's, it's a lot of it is timing. Um, and I would say both is patience, but most of all perseverance, um, because we're not always going to make the right, uh, we're not always going to have the right answer right off the bat. But what we do is we take data-driven decisions, which I'm sure everybody has, but we take it to the next level of like really being disciplined about it. And my partner, Artem and I, we actually ate our own dog food. Before we launched our fund, we actually went out in the market for over a couple of years, testing this out of whether or not our methodologies actually work. And I think that's important to know as well. Um, so the question is, how do, you, how do we directly assist an organization fundamentally going from a three to five person team to scaling at a rate that is sustainable and won't break versus just going from three to five to 20 per se? Um, and I think that is, it's very, uh, I think the best way to approach that and how we've approached it with organizations is what is the immediate need at a young stage of an organization, they, everybody should be, uh, working to the point of failure. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I should mean that in a very positive way of that, you know, for instance, a sales rep should be breaking at the seams and crushing their commissions before you hire a new salesperson, right. Versus hiring a team, a team of five people. And I think uh, on top of that, especially at that younger stage of an organization, what's very important is for the founding team, whether or not they're salespeople or not, is understand the value proposition and how the product needs to be sold 
which that's directly what we can help with versus going out and hiring a senior sales sales leader that is just you know targeting uh, the early stage growth. And the reason why I think that's crucially important is because once you understand what how it needs to be sold, you'll be more adept to finding the right ca- uh, uh, candidates to fit that role based on their background and their previous experience. And I think that is the the hardest thing, you know, as they, you know, there's so many different books and and blog postings and podcasts around uh, hiring right, right? Um, you know, hire slow, fire fast, right? And that's always what people say. And I think there's a lot to be said about that is you want to build that slow growth. Very few companies can go from an eight-person team to, you know, a couple hundred-person team. The only company I've seen do that that's done really well is a group called Hoppin out of the UK. They, they've gone through two rounds of funding and have blown up on this COVID, uh, uh, you know, debacle because their technology was perfectly timed for that, luckily for them. Um, and they've had an incre- incredible growth. But the founder, I think, that was his sole purpose, right, was just making sure that they grow, but also uh, maintaining the ecosystem and the culture within the company for that hunger, um, which is always, it's it's a little bit of art. I would say a little bit of science, more art than anything else, right? That's if you can know that. If you can know that, then you know that's that's patentable unto itself. <laughs> well, it is. It's a it's a fine balance for sure. And so now that you're you're helping these early stage companies kind of find that growth uh, or find that momentum and the hiring processes, um, what do you guys do to kind of keep that moving to that next round? Is there uh, you you mentioned there's data points that you're looking for um, signals. What what happen to be those important signals that you guys look for, and and how does that work? Do you just keep making investments from your fund, or is it um, they're engaging with you so you can keep that conversation going? How do you keep that moving forward? Yeah, so I think we should look at the how we approach the funding in general. So what we do is we like to work with the founding team for several months before. Uh, we commit sometimes if we're we are committing for the next fund or extension of the fund of their current round uh, we either get into an LOI or we'll put in a short-term warrants in so that any work we do with them uh, we are a little bit defensible we don't shoot ourselves in a foot from a from a fund standpoint um, but during that time period we were able to get a lot of we were able to do some due diligence on them uh, more than uh, than you would just doing a classic deal room uh, due diligence because we're working hand on hand with next to the founder a couple times a week, if not more. So we really get to understand their personality, their scalability, as well as we do personality assessments for the core executive team to understand their where they might have a little bit of weaknesses in terms of versus their strengths. Like might not be organized, but have very great vision. So we know we need to backfill the organization standpoint, be a little bit more rigorous in terms of our communication with that person. Um, so those are kind of like the first steps, but as we continue to work with them, uh, you know, we put it in the early stage capital uh, to help them grow once we feel comfortable with it. Um, and then post our involvement, you know, we do have a, a sub funds for follow on investments. But again, we are looking to help them uh, raise their next round of funding with some of our core partners. Um, and through this entire process, I think what is crucial from day one throughout, you know, it's always assisting the founder, make sure that they know their business from a data standpoint, are they tracking? And the core, I think the core tenants, and this would be for most, uh, you know, some people have more of a MRR, ARR trajectory, uh, month over month growth. Some people look at EBITDA, depending on the vertical and classification of the company. I don't think there's any right or wrong answer, but I would say that we fall in line with, uh, with that uh, core 
data point of month over month growth, year over year growth, but also then we start looking at what is our direct impact and how are we increasing their leads and then starting to fine tune all those different areas, you know, MQL to opportunity, opportunity to win, or can we increase the deal, uh, the deal size or the ACV uh, by doing cross-selling, uh, you know, within the organization and then looking at uh, shorting up that deal cycle uh, to help them be a little bit more successful. And once you kind of get your hands around that, you get like the goosebump mo you, like moment we like to call it, or the, oh crap, we understand this now. Okay, now we can do a replication and rinse and repeat into other verticals and or with other reps because we know we have a universe of these many leads. We have it tuned to, we know we can get them you know, from opportunity to close within 30 days, you know, MQL to opportunity within next, you know, whatever those deal, whatever that is. And then it's a very, it's a, it's more, a lot easier for a rinse and repeat model. And look, the reason why I love SaaS, uh, you know, comes from my finance, my, my financial background at Merrill, which is I love annuitized business. And that's what SaaS is, right? If you can control your inputs and you know what your outputs are, you know, if we put in $1, we're getting 10 out and we have a limited churn and we know we have a universe of X, Y, and Z, well, then it's just a matter of going to market and not screwing it up, right? And that's where it becomes really exciting. No, it does. Sounds very... Uh... Uh, very exciting for uh, for all the companies. So how do you align these companies up in this type of discussion? So you guys do your networking, you find the company and you're like, these guys are great. Is there like 50 of them that you're like, these are all great companies or it kind of sounds like there's some accelerator style into this. So are you taking in a grouping of companies every quarter or every year, or is it just based on, you know what? I love these guys. You yeah. dive into them and they're like, man, why, why you call me every day? And you're like, you know what? I'm investing in you. So let's get this lined up. We're going this way and let's make this happen. Is that kind right. of the process? So I would say, you know, it's more of a symbiotic relationship, right? The companies that we resonate are companies that are looking for, they're coming to us, not because of capital. They're coming to us because of help. And the capital is kind of a byproduct of that, of us having our own skin in the game and, Having also just be quite frankly, because we're not consultants, you know, we're investors at the end of the day. Uh, but we we really, I think we're operators at heart. You know, we love operating, and we mm -hmm. do. And then the investment is is the upside for us. And so I think by those two alignments, you know, we're able to find the right mix of companies. And you know, you mentioned accelerators, and are we going to follow that type of model? I would say no. Um, I've been a part of a number of accelerators. Uh, one of my first organizations that I came with uh, was Batch uh, One at uh, 500 Startups. I've been a part of 500 for a number of years ever since, you know, on and off EIR, uh, part of some of the, uh, you know, accelerators at Cal Berkeley, Cal Poly, obviously I'm really involved with. And so I do appreciate the ecosystem of an accelerator, um, but I think it's also gone through its own evolution, right? Um, and I think that is, you know, there, it's a lot easier now to get resources and to start a company versus, you know, 10 plus years ago where that was the whole purpose was because they created that ecosystem for you. Now you can go to, you know, easy places online uh, to get some of those resources where you didn't have to uh, go to an accelerator. However, that being said, I do think that there are exceptional accelerators out there that still have that immersive boot camp. You're going to come in looking this and come out looking like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm working with one out of Los Angeles called Expert Dojo. They're crushing it right now. Oh, I love them. Brian's awesome. Yeah, I love the way that they operate. And they and like he really does put his money where his mouth is. He's like, look, guys, we're really going to 
we're going to put it, we're going to throw everything at you. We're going to do everything we can to make you a success. Uh, I have one of my portfolio companies in there right now. I can't speak higher of it, but I think, you know, everybody has, every accelerator has to go through their life cycle, right? And 500 still is doing good. You know, YC is still one of the top brands out there. You have Alchemist and Founders Den and everybody in between. Um, and I think everybody, you just have to find for a company. I think it's really important to, why are we, if we are looking at that, why are we looking at an accelerator format? And does that specific accelerator give me something that I can't get at another accelerator or is unique to my business? Um, and I think that's where we're going to start seeing a lot more niche uh, 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 accelerators, you know, food industry or, you know, you know, farm ag uh, focused. And that's where you're going to see centers of confluence of investors as well. So I do believe in it, but I think you can also survive outside of it, depending on your company. For sure. It brings a lot of uh, mentorship and opening up doors, as you mentioned. I think that's kind of a big, a big winner for most, Absolutely. but I think it refines your business model. I think you need an audience that is uh, attentive and those accelerators, incubators, they provide that attentive uh, handholding so that they can bash the model. So you, like you said, you come in one and go out different. I think that makes a, a big push for your business. Um, but you mentioned it a few times. How much do you think that um, early stage pre-seed and seed round companies and even Series A, how much of their growth and opportunity is banked on uh, coaching, mentorship? Uh, how much of that value do you see that these startups really need? Because you mentioned right at the beginning that they're not coming to you for funding right away necessarily. They're coming right. for help and help comes in many forms. So do you, do you find that though that piece is really a, a really crucial for a startup and you would say, Hey, if you're going to build a company, look for somewhere where you can fit in that you can get that valuable help at the beginning. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, absolutely. And I honestly is <laughs> there's so many different analogies you could throw at, you know, from beekeeping to, uh, you know, the startup stuff, you know, it does take a village. And I think it's very important for a founding team to have outside mentors and advisors that can help them open the doors, soundboard with them and make better rapid decisions than they can. Because the problem that you have when you're in a startup, and I've been in those entities where, you know, we had, you know, we desperately needed outside help, but we didn't get it. And you end up being in a, a, a vacuum chamber of hearing your own echo. And you're not actually being pragmatic or looking at it, uh, the marketplace and what's happening within your organization. Uh, with transparent eyes. And I think that's what the advisors and mentors can provide you. I think it takes a different type of entrepreneur, to be quite honest with you, to have hubris and some humility that, you know, hey, even though I'm feeling this traction, I feel like I'm king of the world, you know, I still need to, you know, this could be very fleeting and I don't want to mess this up. And not necessarily saying that they're going to make bad decisions, but I think it's important to surround yourself uh, with the right people uh, within the industry that are, you know, invested in your business. And I would say from an advisory standpoint, it's if you get the right advisor, hold them accountable. And, you know, I, I've directly invested in the companies uh, where I've been an advisor because there's not really free equity. You know, the equity is the upside, but, you know, having a little bit of skin in game. And I think that provides a little bit more of a tighter of alignment between the founder and the advisor slash investor, because they're both now, you know, they got skin in the game, deep skin, right? No matter the check size. And I think that's important as well. But yeah, no, whether you're getting it through an accelerator or just by, uh, you know, industry folks that you're bringing on that are excited about what you're doing, it's absolutely important. And I, I would say that even the accelerator program, 
you know, not having getting, you know, uh, you know, MBA myself, but all my friends that have gone through the process, you know, they all say, you know, the MBA was great. I partied a lot, but I made a lot of great connections. It's the network that they yep. got from it and the ecosystem and the ecology that they got access to. And I would say in some ways the accelerator as well. You know, one of the, um, uh, the last five companies I worked with out of 500 startups, they love 500. But I think if you ask them wholeheartedly what uh, the benefit was for them was all the people that they met. But again, yep. that's kind of the premise behind it, right? So it does work. And, you know, they still talk, they still share notes. Some of them become each other's clients and customers. And so it's fun to watch that and watch them all grow uh, and become great success. And so uh, I definitely think that that all companies should have their own core network outside of their direct uh, people that they're working with. Well, I think you mentioned it. It's, it's, it when you're in tight with somebody in a, an environment that you're all working towards the same common goal, if it's helping you build your business or it's building a, a bee colony, you're looking for ways <laughs> to change and fix that. And if you don't have all eyes in, you can't build other relationships. So if you're doing it on your own, just looking at your own business, you're not going to tie things in. You don't have people getting your back and helping you uh, fix right. things when they're broken uh, or being able to pick brain on a weather format, uh, weather that's coming in and you don't know how to react to it. So there's, I think there's a lot of things that we don't, we think we know, but then when we're forced into them, we have no idea how to react and we don't ask questions quick enough. And right. then we have bigger problems later. More times than not, I get a phone call and it's not like, Hey, Brandon, how's the family? It's like, Brandon, our Chrome extension is not getting passed through Google. Do you have any ties in there? And me trying to make some phone calls to you know keep people within an organization. I'm using that as a fake analogy, but yep. you know it's it's definitely more of like here's you know here's our problem. Uh, notice that you're connected to this person on LinkedIn, and can you pinch it? And I think that's again it's powered by numbers, right? And one of the things we highlighted earlier in this conversation is it's all about rapid succession and execution, right? And so I think that's also too where your network and your advisors, your mentors, your board members and investors can all play a really, you got to hold them accountable because they might have areas of, of influence that they can uh, tap into that can help you get to your end game or the end answer. It might not be the end game. It might just be like, this is a dead end, but we got there faster and we didn't burn, you know, a couple life cycles on this. So. No, I love that. And do you think that those, uh, there's like, uh, and again, this could be anything. It's maybe all time-based, but there's different groups like the um, networks where you can um, spend a, an hour or two hours a month with other CEOs. Like you find that all of these types of environments are all good because you're building depth, you're sharing vulnerabilities. Um, like these make a difference in helping you grow your business. I do, but I think one of those transactional style conversations is great to get somebody's feedback on their experience because that's that's invaluable, right? Like it's, you know, that's that's what it's all about is learning from other people's mistakes and their successes and why they made the decisions they made in the sequence that they made them so that you can pattern that to where you're at and see if you can take assumptions to, to have better results. But what I think uh, one of the hardest parts, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is that bringing, working with these relationships or having those types of transactional you don't get that pattern recognition. So if we go back to the bee colonies uh, as an analogy, if I go into somebody's bee colony, I can tell them where the bee, how the bees are acting right then and there. But I don't necessarily can't predict where the health of the hive is going outside of seeing some key indicators, right? So for instance, if I parlay that into, if I open up a hive and I see that there's a bunch of mites or beetle, hive beetles, I know we have to treat for that. 
Same thing with, with the company. If I go in and I see that they have over 15% churn on SaaS, then I know that they, you know, we got to button that up. But in terms of evolution of where we're going uh, as an organization, it's not just a transaction. It's, it's an evolution where you have to see what has worked, what hasn't worked, what's cyclical, what's non-cyclical. There's a bigger ebb and flow to the business that you need to kind of pay attention to. And that's, that's why when, like, for instance, I get, you know, due diligence paperwork, if somebody sends me, you know, last for only 12 months, I want it on a month-to-month basis because I want to see the inflection points of their last 12 months. I don't want to see consolidated report. And from that, I, I can start seeing the pulse, ups and downs of the organization. Do we have a huge spike here? Do we have a huge crash here? Okay, what created that heart attack? <laughs> yep. you know, so that's, are we consistently growing or is it very spotty and, you know, a whole lot of stuff that we can dive into on that. No, exactly. And kind of as they're going through that information, this kind of pulls us back to um, the beginning on what your main focus was on the, uh, the data and the numbers and how yeah. you guys work with the startups. So you kind of gone through this journey to get them. Now, how do you, how do you work with a startup to give them the idea around the types of people that they want to hire? So a lot of the times you want this great person, but they cost way too much. So what are the ways that you can work with them on that finance side? So they're getting the right person that's doing the right job. It's almost like you need to hire five entrepreneurs that can do every job, wear every hat, and that's what's going to get you a little bit more further until you can start to refine their needs and wants into like single task, single individuals. How do you kind of get them over that hump so that they can get to the where they're getting into growth stage and making money? Right. And so I think the best way to approach that is having a game plan of what is your hire schedule for the next rolling 12 to 18 months, given what we know right now. Right. And so quite early on within an organization, you need people that are a little bit more Swiss Army knife that have skills that are soft skills, like a little bit better on messaging and marketing, but also have a great personality that they can be a hunter in terms of a sales rep, that they like that, you know, they, they're attracted to money um, uh, and whatnot. So I think one, one tool that we have in our tool chest is obviously a, a personality test and assessment so that even if you do get through the last stages, you at least identify their, uh, their strengths and weaknesses. It's not necessarily to weed people out, but it's the last step that we use uh, so that when we start working with them, we know exactly how to approach uh, and work with them effectively. Um, in terms of like growth and sales, it really comes down to where they are existing right now. Um, in some ways, what we found with a lot of young stage companies is that that work with us because they have to have some success. We can't take a product uh, proof of concept. We can't take you know a PMF stage or a product market fit stage company and get them hyper growth. We can't take companies already past that stage and get their go-to-market strategy and refine it so that they can have, get faster at that chain curve. And so we have a luxury of being a little bit in a, what we feel like our own sweet spot. And so from that, we take you know, more Swiss Army knife-like people at the very beginning. But I think you, you kind of alluded to one good point, which is at a young stage organization, you need to have five entrepreneurs, people that can wear multiple hats, right? Everybody has to be broad stroke in terms of their uh, skill sets and their abilities and also be... Uh, motivated by that. And I think that's a key attribute, right? You have to enjoy that type of work versus somebody who's been from large corporate, who's only done, you know, pull this lever down and turn this dial mentality. But as you start to build out your, your organization, I think it's really important that you bring on people that are refined niche for the areas of business that are 
that are needed at that present time. For instance, if you have had that growth where you're hitting a half million to a million dollars in, in revenue, do you have a client managers already in place that are, that's their sole job just to make sure that you limit the churn and or get expansion from your existing client base? If not, that's an easy hire and something that you can put in because the worst thing to do is hire more sales reps or more consumers in if you have a huge you know, outlet of consumers going out. So first button that up. And then as you start to build out these core roles and you start building out core areas of the organization and these little niche areas, right? Where they're very focused in on direct tasks, but every task needs to be related to KPIs and OKRs so that they know what it means for them to be successful. But also I think what the biggest gap that entrepreneurs make is not taking that time because it starts at the very early days. Same thing with data. Even if you have relatively no sales, start making your charts. You know, it gets you in a discipline and a habit and those, those are great habits to have. And same thing with OKRs and, and KPIs. Even if you have a five person sales team and you talk to these people every day, it's good just to go through the process. You'll start to uncover things about the business, about them, um, about what motivates them and what changes need to happen as you continue to grow. Um, so yeah, you know, and for me personally, uh, especially within a sales organization, uh, I think I like to look at uh, individuals that have some sort of competitive background, whether the easiest one to identify is sports. Like, did you play sports? Are you competitive, college athlete, whatnot? Um, or is there something else that you're competitive with? You know, competitive eating, I don't care. As long as you had some sort of discipline, what that does for me is that creates a footprint of like, okay, I was disciplined in this area. I knew that I had to wake up at six o'clock in the morning in order for me to get results six months down the road, right? And that's what it takes right now is to make those micro moments that add up to hit that end result. So it's like, um, <laughs> I don't know if you can hear the kids in the background, but I apologize. It sounds like, my oh, job. no, it's awesome. Keeps things <laughs> moving. Uh, it, it's almost like you need to hire uh, four or five David Goggins to come work for you because you know you're gonna, he's going to drive the hell out of the team and make everybody effective. Um, which I think is fascinating because, uh, the biggest fear I think goes back to this original part where we started, which was the hiring from five to 15 and going rapid speed and not understanding the skills and the value that they're going to bring. And then getting yourself so far along that all of a sudden there's one day where you got to go and ax half the team because you burned too much capital. You didn't get the deliverables you wanted because you didn't measure it. You weren't being practical, like you said, by documenting and, and managing your KPIs and, and being able to understand that output. So what is maybe one piece of advice that you can give to the startups that when they are hiring and they are working their way through this is that they can't become attached to the people. They have to be attached to the goal. Right. And the goal is what you're trying to achieve. And I think a lot of times um, I find that there's too much attachment and you're, they're losing the understanding of where you're trying to go to. And that people will maneuver in and out all the time into businesses. And that's a good thing. But at the same time that you have to make everything palatable enough so that the excitement is always there, but you still have to hit your end goal. And if you're going to be focusing in five years or three years and honing that focus of your business, that means that the people that might be with you today may not be with you tomorrow. And how do you understand that and, and plan for that so that the fear and the first time having to let people go becomes the hardest thing that a CEO will ever do uh, because they've never had to do this before. Yeah. 
in most cases. So how do you work with them on that last little piece and what kind of advice would you give to a startup to better understand how they got to work through that cycle? Right. And so wholeheartedly agree with everything that you just described. It's one of the hardest things for young, uh, for founders to do is to make those decisions. I think it becomes a lot easier when you have KPIs and OKRs that are directly directly tied to each one of the roles, because then it doesn't become an emotional, personal decision, right? Then it becomes a performance issue. And performance always comes down to one, either they're, they're, that person's motivation, whether or not they're the right person for the job, right? Do they have the proper training? Or in some instances, is it even the right time for this role within the organization? And I would say that more times than not, we find companies that have come to us, it's been after a nine or 12 month stint where they hired a senior salesperson to come in because they had early traction. Typically what we find with that is that salesperson will you know, ramp up for three months and they have you know, about three months of you know, performance. Then another three months of the CEO going, you know, where's the sales reps? I just invested, where, where's the sales and revenue? I just invested six months in you. Nine months, you know, once they hit the nine month mark, then having this come to Jesus discussion, and then eventually over another three months, you know, weeding that person out. Well, you just burn, it's not so much the capital, which is important, but it's opportunity costs, right? You just burned a year of your time, if not, you know, six months to a year of opportunity of actually effective selling. And so, you know, that is one of the biggest things that we've seen is mainly at this stage of an organization, you know, pre-series B is hiring sales leadership at a, at a uh, too early of a, of a path within the organization. And I really heart, wholeheartedly believe that even if the founder does not know how to sell, they, they must know that they must know that ecosystem for their organization. Otherwise you're not gonna be able to hire the right people. Now, in terms of letting people go, you know, I've, I've, I have friends of mine that, uh, you know, either from venture or companies, my friends that have, you know, gone, gone public and everybody says the same thing. I wish I would have let go of people earlier when I knew that they weren't going to work out, but I held on because it was personal, whether either through nepotism, hiring friends and, or, you know, it's a good person. They're trying, they're trying to hold on, uh, but it's just not working out from a performance basis. And the, the only thing I can really relate to that is it's like any relationship, right? You're either going to grow together or you're going to grow apart. Right. And at least within business, you can see that, as roles become more and more niche, um, whether or not people are gonna perform and whether or not people are gonna be able to stay with you. And it's okay if it's not. That's the reason why you have the KPIs is to help guide that decision-making process so that it's not as hard. Because at the end of the day, if somebody's not cutting, it's not in their benefit and it's not in your benefit to keep them in the company. So as, yeah, Godfather, it's, it's, as, as Godfather said, it's not personal. It's business. I think it was Godfather, but I can't remember. But I love it. No, but it, you're you're right. It's a, it is tough. And um, it, from all the from in all the podcasts we've done and all these different interviews, everybody has different perspectives on everything, of course. But what I love is that there's always something that you can refine and take back from it. And I think that in a, in the startup venture side and to take your the KPIs and, and how you manage the data and you how you manage the growth of your beehive is that if I stick up five points on my wall today and I stick up another five of something different on my wall and maybe I've got three or four sheets but it's it's almost like just like when you're queuing yourself up to go do a talk 
You have certain things you want to do. You're queuing up for golf. You know, it's head up, shoulders back, butt out, whatever it is. But you remember that five-step process. The thing is, is that in business, you're always reactionary. You're not planning. You're always reacting. And the thing is that that overcomes all of those pages you have on the wall because you're not looking at them anymore. And you think, oh, intrinsically, I know it. But you really don't because you're not walking through those five steps. It's not something that you do once every two weeks or two months like golf. So you kind of have to go through that process every day. So it almost makes sense that you should have these cues up that are referencing, check your KPIs, make sure this is in line, do these things because it's your business. And if we make it too personal, it may not be your business in the long run. Right. Right. No, and I think, you know, even taking this step further of looking at all the notes, like just say like all the different advice, the five points you get from all your different advisors, what you're also going to find is, a trend and a pattern of certain concepts and theology that are, that are aligned there. I think that's what also is important for an entrepreneur to do is take all the bits and pieces that they get and assimilate it down into their own thought process, right? And that will help guide them to making better decisions. And then create some sort of reference point so that they can keep looking at it. Exactly. And exactly. check those off. I love it. Yep. Well, we're, we're going to jump into the rapid fire questions. Please. Almost really quickly, but I'm going to have one last question for you. Please. Uh, so I always like to kind of hear that one story where uh, in the years that you've been doing this and you kind of look at it and say, man, this story really touched me was, you know, this founder, she did this or this founder did this and they were on the brink of destruction and they just took off from there or they were um, running high and then they ran out of cash. Just looking for something where the community can kind of learn from those types of good and bad and the ugly to kind of ramp their mind around. This is what entrepreneurship's like, and this is what the hustle is, and you got to really put your effort and mind into it. Yeah, so I I definitely have my dramatic uh, startup stories of uh, you know companies going belly under and uh, busting for you know most of all human resource issues. Um, but I'll refrain from telling any of those. I like to you want the glory stories, glory, want the big ones. Yeah, well, I think I like to focus in on uh, one company because I think it's a, a really, I love this founder. Like I think he, him and his wife, it's a duo. Uh, they're exceptional. Um, and they're exceptional because their business was booming last year. And then COVID hit. And guess what their target, tar, target audience was for their ICP? Hospitality and catering. They went from growing, you know, a couple hundred points uh, a month over month to, to zero. And very few times do you find founders that have the resilience that they have, knowing that this is not forever, but we have to stay positive. And we know that uh, we are, uh, their story of why they started this company, it's a Thor Wood and his wife, uh, they started Snapshift. Um, there's no doubt that I believe that they're going to be successful once this thing turns around. But it's, you know, one of those things that they've, they've endured a lot. And they're now starting to come out of the, uh, you know, the dark place that they were at. And their revenue is starting to creep back up to not necessarily where it was because we're not doing COVID. Um, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's a testament to the entrepreneurial spirit of if you really believe in your vision, uh, you know, look at the data. Their data was strong and sound pre-COVID. That was a systemic, you know, catastrophic event outside of their, uh, outside of their uh, control. Um, but they stuck with it. And, you know, I think that their business will be uh, more formidable now 
than it will has ever been uh, because you know they've taken all the resources focused in on areas of the product that they needed to you know build up and I think they'll be able to hit the market um, where everybody else is kind of close up shop um, and be even more of a wild success um, so I think you know, in, in that sense you know I, I'll point to that as a as a high point and to COVID, you know, in some areas, it's it's helped a lot of businesses out. Um, I had a company, uh, you know, this one group uh, that I mentored out of 500 startups called Butler. Uh, they were focused on the vertical of uh, retail uh, for their IO, IoT device that uh, monitors foot traffic. COVID completely killed their business. They pivoted into a different vertical. They went from doing zero to, I'm not even, I can't even tell you the numbers, but it's well north of this, just put it this way, $10 million in less than a year. And so, you know, it's, you know, you have those success stories, which I like to focus on the success and not the negatives. Um, because majority of the negative, the majority of the negatives, I think, quite honestly, is uh, it comes down to the team not executing or gelling together and drama within the human resource component. And so to that point, you know, before we get into rapid succession, you know, we have a couple tenants that we live that we listen to, which are the three T's team traction timing, right? And most people have, you know, similar tenants. You know, we look at the team, then we look at how they're doing, and then, you know, whether or not we're, we get excited about the space. And it's not all that different, right? But we really try and take a, you know, a very, again, kind of following a more of a data model around this. What is it about the team that excites us? What is it about the team that we feel like they're coachable and can listen, not just from us because, uh, but from other people that they're not going to have this ego that I got, I got myself to this, I'm going to get to a billion dollars, I don't need you mentality that sometimes can take a part of somebody's personality. Um, and then the traction, you know, the traction speaks for itself. It's all about numbers. It's all about the velocity. And then for us, what we look at is how we can impact that business. And then, you know, the, the one that's outside everybody's point is why, why is it now? Why is it this team's time? Why is it this team for their traction? What's happening in the ecosystem? And are there going to be success as a result of that? And I think that's also another way of kind of approaching uh, the question and the, the mentality around that. I love it. And I, I love the fact that you said like taking that, uh, the best ones are the ones that take that negative outcome or the thing that was going to go wrong and they turned it into a solution and they found the better way out. And I, I think those are the, those are the, the founders that you want to get behind that you want to get behind and invest because they're the ones that are resilient. They cover every word on the wall that you're going to write up there about uh, entrepreneurship and and those are the ones that we get the energy from and love to hear the stories on so I, I appreciate that and thank you for the share no all right rapid fire questions okay why do you invest in startup companies uh, i mean i just i've been a part of the ecosystem for so long that i love the entrepreneurial spirit uh and i don't think i could i feed off of that energy you know just as my part my my business partner feeds off the data side of it uh, I feel off of the, the entrepreneur spirit. I've been an entrepreneur all my life uh, and I wouldn't want to do anything else in the world. Uh, the investing part is just kind of the, the, the upside of it, but I, I love being working uh, with uh, different companies. Uh, makes me feel fresh in terms of the new technologies that comes out and also helps with the ADD, uh, working with multiple companies at once. I love it. I'm the same. Love it. Uh, <laughs> what's your favorite part of investing? Uh, I think the success, right? I, I, you know, I have a ba background in athletics um, and seeing all the effort and the sweat equity that you put into it or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And then seeing the outcome of what you produce is, I mean, it it's out of the skin type of feeling sometimes, uh, especially when it's the company's 
first when the foundering team is the first time and you, when you're working with them, you can see the energy and then the amount of appreciation that they have for the assistance. For me, it's nothing. I, I just love to see their success. It's not necessarily nothing. It's what I like to give and give back. That's the way I look at it. But when you see them, you know, because it's their baby and it's their vision. And when you see that being successful, there's nothing like it in the world. I always say I'm the biggest cheerleader, startup cheerleader. I just feel like I got a hoorah. I love this. That's awesome. All right. How many companies do you invest in per year? Uh, our fund right now is relatively small. Uh, we have a target of a plus or minus 15. Um, right now we're on track to do five a year and we're going to be accelerating that. Um, so, you know, we're still on the emerging manager micro fund uh, on the scale of the venture. Uh, and so that's how we approach it. And plus, we can't really bring on more organizations than that uh, just because of operational capacity of our team. Well, it makes sense how deep you guys get into a company. It'd be pretty tough to have 50 of them at one time. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I still I love it. It's awesome. Uh, all right. Any verticals you like to focus on? Uh, we tend to gravitate more towards demonstrable ROI and what we consider our high frequency. Uh, demonstrable ROI means that the value proposition is if you use this software, you're going to get this as a result of it, whatever, whatever that number is. But there's very much, those are easy to sell. Um, and high frequency are ones that uh, the end consumer uses on a day-to-day -day or weekly basis or high touch point. Um, so those tend to be more B2B analytic, uh, you know, BI. Um, and we find ourselves that almost 80% of the company uh, that, that we work with right now excuse me, are um, within what we consider deep tech or machine learning uh, AI. And I think that's just more of an evolution of SaaS that, you know, again, kind of going to the timing point, what I made earlier is that it's not, that time is now for that type of technology because you have all this big data repositories that people are sitting on that people have been collecting for the last couple of years. And that now they need to make sense of it. And so I think that's where the evolution and the timing is for that. Um, that's where we're really excited because uh, a lot of these companies are doing really unique things. But we tend to stay away from uh, regulatory uh, areas like uh, bio, uh, health, um, you know, HIPAA style regulations. And that's not because we're not bullish in those areas, but from where our impact is, those tend to have longer sales cycle and not more of a repetitive sales cycle because of the regulatory per, uh, process around that. So we tend to okay. stay away from that. Do you lead rounds? We do not lead rounds at the present time. We do have a vision that as we grow our funds, you know, fund two and beyond, uh, that we will be uh, going down more of a, a co-lead or a lead path uh, for certain stage organizations. But right now we're having fun with what we're doing. Okay. Uh, do you do fund-to-fund -fund investing? We do not. We do not. But what we do do is uh, from time to time when we find companies that fall outside of our uh, mandates, um, that we don't want to violate our uh, mandates for LPs and our uh, investment thesis, that we will occasionally run an SPV for companies that fall outside of that. Yep. Um, and that's where, you know, again, we have to be very bullish and very excited about the space and mainly the entrepreneur for us to go to that level. Okay. Do you have any preferred terms like pref shares, common shares, open to all of it? Uh, we're open to all of it. You know, what I found with, if you get too stringent on opportunities, then opportunities be lost because of certain things that are outside of your control, i.e. that a company doesn't have preferred shares uh, or, you know, whatever the mechanics are. Um, but what we do like to do is make sure that we stay as middle road as possible uh, because we're not the lead of most of the deals um, that, you know, we'll follow on to most of the other carry on investors 
and just have the same terms that they have. And they've usually already done some dictation on that or preferred and whatnot. So. Okay. Um, do you do follow on investments? We try to, especially for our, uh, and not only that, but uh, we also, for our LPs, we're pretty LP friendly. Um, we also allow for sidecar provisioning for our LPs so they can go direct to the, uh, to the company uh, when they're successful um, or even during that current round. So, Love it. And uh, last question, do you take board seats? Do we take board seats? Um, we have, we don't always dictate that. I think that's more of a lead position. Um, we've done everything from board observer or advisory. Um, I think our, our role at this point, given at the, the, amount of, the, the amount that we invest and the fact that we don't lead, I think our role is more of a board observer and or advisory position um, versus taking a board seat. Okay, awesome. All right, well, we're gonna jump into uh, the, the little segment of personal questions. Please. All right, so favorite sports team? Oh, goodness. So I'm going to make a lot of people I grew up with upset. So, uh, you know, I try to, I don't, I'm not an avid sports washer, just watcher because, uh, you know, three kids, be management and uh, work. I say that some of that jokingly, I don't have that much free time. Uh, but I was born and raised in Los Angeles. So I grew up with uh, the Dodgers. Uh, but now that I've been in the Bay Area for uh, almost longer than uh, my, my childhood lifetime, uh, I've definitely moved to being the Giants. Uh, so I'm a typical uh, uh, Bay Area patron of 49ers, Giants, and the Warriors. Uh, my father-in-law is a pretty avid uh, Warrior fan, so if I, if I went against the grain, I, I don't know if uh, family holidays would be the same. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fair enough. Well, they're all it's a, they're all good organizations, so that's cool. We'll give you the three then, the whole area of San Fran. Yeah. Um, all right, next question is, your favorite movie, and what character would you play in the movie? Oh, that is, there's so many, I'm, I'm, you know, coming from Hollywood, you know, third generation Los Angeles, uh, you know, we're definitely movie buffs and there's so many good movies that you, that that's a very hard question. Uh, I think honestly that it's going to be an obscure movie for some people, uh, but things to do in Denver when you're dead with Andy Garcia. The reason why I liked it was because it was a unique movie at the time when it was released. It was done by two UCLA grad students that were coming out of film school. But the, I don't know, there's probably probably a proper name for this, but the lingo within and the way that the speed, the script writing was, was just so good. You know, I watched, remember watching when I was in college, uh, everything from, you know, the comment of boat drinks to give it a name or, you know, uh, buck, uh, buckwheats or whatever it was that I forget how they kill people. It's obviously a gangster movie. Uh, but I, I really love that movie. Um, and obviously Andy Garcia, uh, was, was great in that movie. So I probably want to take, you know what? I think I would actually take Christopher Walken's role just because he was just so scary. Christopher Walken's? Yeah, he was, he was great in that. Uh, Pam so it's called Things to Do When You're Dead. Is that right? Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. Yeah, it has Christopher Walken. It has, uh, uh, Andy Garcia. Pam Anderson did a cameo in it. Uh, it has all... If you look at the cast, you'll be like, you'll be pretty amazed uh, to see who, who's in that. Um, but yeah, right. it's, a, it's a great movie and uh, definitely uh, one to dig up out of the archives. I, you probably can get it up free on Amazon Prime, but yeah, I'm going to dig it up. I haven't, uh, I haven't seen the movie, but that's on the list tonight. I'm going to watch this. This, I, I, I <laughs> it makes it sound like I'm just trying to get movie uh, 
things <laughs> off everybody. Hey, I'm bored. It's COVID. Can you find me a good oh, movie no. to watch? And but, again, uh, yeah, no, I think I think it's a great movie. Now, again, I think it's a great movie because of it was during the time when it was released of like True Romance, Reservoir Dogs, which were like, you know, independent. I love Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. So it's along that same class, but a lot of people have never heard of it. But I really like it because it was done by, you know, some grad students and the the scripting of it was just, uh, it was kind of revolutionary, at least for me at that time. So I don't know. All right. Well, I've taken my notes and uh, I'm going to uh, look up this movie. If for some reason I can't find it, I'm going to send you a message so I could flag that down. Um, and I'm going to check out, well, who can't check out Christopher Watkins? The guy's a rock star. So I'm going to be excited to see this movie regardless. Yeah. Um, but I want to, I want to thank you very much today, Brandon, for all your time. Um, it was awesome. I think we went through a nice journey there. We learned a lot about the way you think, the way your business runs and how startups actually can relate themselves to beekeeping, which I think is exciting. Um, and, uh, I love the analogies and, and how you guys are working and functioning and helping startups. So I want to thank you for your time. And Thanks. the way we, we like to run or end the show off is I want to give you the last word. So if there's anything that you want to share to the investment community or to the startup startups out there or to the entrepreneurs in general, uh, I leave it to you, but I give you the last word. And again, thanks for your time today. Yeah, I think the only motivational thing, I, or it's not even say motivational, the thing that I can say, uh, you know, to most entrepreneurs is, you know, definitely follow your dreams of what and why you're passionate around your business, right? Um, if you stay true to that, everything else will fall into place, but mostly surround yourself with the right people. Um, and I think that that and out that that goes with anything in life. You know, me having three kids, I was raised with uh, the mentality, with the you know the you know the fatherly or motherly statement of "Tell me who your friends are, I'll tell you who you are." If you want to be a, a strong entrepreneur, surround yourself from people that have been successful. Um, I wouldn't get, have gotten to where I am today if it wasn't for the mentors that I had. Um, we got to learn off of them and also help them help me not make uh, really critical bad decisions um, and help guide me along, but also just be very uh, open to your own mistakes and learning from them. Nobody, uh, I'm sorry, if you read that somebody is, you know, first time, you know, first success right out of the gates, I always question that. It's usually a journey that they've gone through uh, and everybody has their own story. Know what your story is, know what your weaknesses are, mostly know what your strengths are. And uh, just be very open to uh, to surrounding yourself again. Surround yourself with the right people, and listen to what they have to say, and making your own right decisions from that. So, a little bit much there, but uh, at the end of the day, it all comes down to you know we can only help lead a horse to water in terms of companies we work with. At the end of the day, it's their company, um, and they have to make the right decisions. We're just there as guiding posts so that they can get closer uh, to not making those mistakes and getting the end goal. So I love it. Thank you, Jeff. Oh, you're doing great things, Brandon. Keep it up. And uh, we appreciate all your time. Oh, that was brilliant. So I think overall, um, pretty incredible. Brandon was able to share. I know we used the beekeeping analogy, but man, is it so relevant to startups? Just the whole concept of being able to nurture and learn and build data, build patterns and understand more of what the hive was going through and what your startup's going through. And with Brandon, what they're doing with the data side is incredible. I think it makes a huge difference to being able to understand at any stage of your business, 
even if you don't have it, start working on it earlier so that you can start pushing that forward um, in your organization so that you can start building KPIs and, and really learning from the data. Uh, but outside that, fantastic. I'm going to check out that movie, especially because it's got um, Watkins in it. Um, either way, thank you. And man, did this light too bright today. Have an awesome day, guys.